One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. An Elio's original. With anti-Asian hate crimes at record numbers, this season of The Margaret Cho, we're examining the historical crimes that laid the groundwork for this recent onslaught of violence. I talk with Asian comedians, authors, journalists, podcasters, as well as the organizations and people working to stop Asian hate. Welcome to the Margaret Cho Mortal Minority. Today, we're talking about Andrew Sa, a 19-year-old college student who killed his sister's fiancé at her behest in 1993. Also, we cover the horrific recent event where an 89-year-old grandmother was set on fire in Brooklyn. My guest today is Kristen Meinzer. Kristen is the producer and host of the podcast, By the Book, as well as the co-author of How to Be Fine, what we learn by living by the rules of 50 self-help books. Hi, Kristen. How are you feeling? How are you feeling with everything going on? Oh, you know, it's a crazy, crazy world we live in. But, you know, I always say to people who are kind enough to check in on me, the racism isn't new, but maybe the uptick in violence is new or the uptick in reporting the violence is new. Mm -hmm. But the racism, that's not new. That's always been there. That's part of America. Absolutely. It's always been there. And it's a big part of who we are as a nation. And it's something that we need to deal with. And I've been really enjoying your coverage of Meghan Markle. And I think that actually this kind of touches on her and you're you're working around her and talking about her is that when we're not actually going to talk about black or white, then everybody who is not in that particular conversation about race is somehow left out of it. And with Megan, it's really these invisible elements of biracial identity where people can, I feel like the royal family, I don't know anything about them, of course, but I feel like (laughs) some of the members are like openly racist just because they don't see her blackness, but they acknowledge it. They know that she's black and so it's just the idea of her blackness, but they don't almost don't see it, I think. 
I think it's because they're oblivious when it comes to matters of race. I mean, this is a family that is incredibly white, that Mm -hmm. cares about bloodlines so deeply that they've been mostly marrying their cousins for a very long time. Right. And and that their love of the bloodline is so great that you can actually inherit the monarchy through blood. I mean, I, right. I just I just think they have a lot of screwed up ideas about where power comes from, mm-hmm. what that has to do with race, uh, the fear of acknowledging that race is ever involved, their colonial history. Let's not forget that two thirds of the Commonwealth is not white, these countries right. that they put their flag into. So you know, they've had a long, complicated history with race long before Megan ever came into the picture. And because mm-hmm. of that, I think they don't know how to deal with it. And they have always had the unspoken model of uh, never complain, never explain. But we all know that when it comes to issues of justice like racism, we should complain. We shouldn't right. stay quiet. Right. And in the past, they would always stay quiet on certain matters because they were about, you know, a skirt length or a color worn to an event. And that is nowhere near the same thing as dealing with racism. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that Archie is not extended. The monarchy is the most racist part of it, that he is not privileged to all of the things that go along with being prince, even though he is the rightful heir. I mean, he is the direct heir. Well, he's not the direct heir, but he is in the top ten in line. He is, yes. yes. He is the grandchild of the future king. He is, you know, who knows how much longer the queen, I mean, she's in her mid-90s. We don't know how much longer we'll have the queen. Any Mm -hmm. minute now, Charles could be the king, and this is the king's grandchild. And at least should be a, a... Uh, royal protections should be available to them. The the kinds of things that really the rest of the royal family take for granted, I imagine, you know, but it's to me, it's just, I'm really fond of of Meghan Markle. And I'm really fond of her journey and her ability to speak the truth of it, because it must be so intimidating. Oh, absolutely. And I just think that they hit the jackpot when they got her. They were so lucky to find somebody who actually studied international relations, who actually had a history of being an outspoken feminist and an anti-racist because that reflected well on them and modernized the family in so many ways. And she already was so good at the PR, at the waving, at the red carpet. She was good at all of these things that royals have to do all the time. Mm -hmm. They should have embraced her. They should have protected her, and they just didn't do it. It's really an outrage. And um, I always find real kinship with people who are biracial, because I think that there's something to that in that when race is sort of like weighed by degrees, Asian Americans are often kind of judged in the same way as people who are biracial in that you're almost white. You're kind of <laughs> but white, we're not. but it, we're not, we're not in any way, yes. but it's a weird outlook about race. And it's a, it's another kind of way that racism affects us in a way that's very negative and, and that you have to sort of be assigned this identity in the hierarchy of what racism is. And when truth, we're all affected by it in different ways. We're all traumatized by it in different ways, but a lot of times Even white people and I think yeah. white people forget that they're affected and traumatized by racism, too. Exactly. They always forget. Mm-hmm. They always forget. And also the idea of when you're Asian, you can say something like the Sari Kim, who is um, the Korean-American uh, Republican uh, 
I think would be senator, oh. she's not senator, in uh, Texas. Texas, yes. Who said that she didn't want Chinese immigrants here. And I can say that because I'm Korean. And it's like, no, bitch, you can't say that because that's racist. Yeah, it's still racist. <laughs> it's still racist. And just because you're a person of color doesn't give you a free pass to be racist. And also, I just have to say, you know, whenever a person of color aligns themselves with white supremacy, mm-hmm. I understand why they do it. You know, for the same yeah. reason that white women align themselves oftentimes with uh, Republican policymakers who are going to not necessarily advocate for women and probably are going to try to pass laws to make life harder for you as a woman. But I think people often want to be you know, in proximity to power. And it's heartbreaking right. when people of color fall for that. I understand why they do. I mm-hmm. totally understand. When I face racism, when I face, you know, microaggressions, when I face any of those things, it hurts very badly. And I understand the desire to get away from that. And I'm guessing those folks, that's what they're trying to do is get away from that with proximity to power in some way or another. But yes, oh, it just makes me so angry. It oh, makes, it makes me, me so, so angry. Mad. A kind of so rage mad. that's only reserved for our own. You yes. Know? It's exactly. Very like, come on. Specific. You're yeah, reflecting can't you... badly on all of us. You're bringing all of us down by doing this. I mean, please. Cut it out. Cut it please. out. Please. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, I mean, to me, it's just, it's so sad. And it, it yeah, there, there's a lot, there's a lot there. But I'm really glad that we get to do this in this podcast is talk about race and talk about the uncomfortable things, but in a way that we can really change everything. And so what I want to do is bring up this is the first subject we'll talk about, is um, the 89-year-old grandmother set on fire in Brooklyn. Now, this is a a very, uh, this sticks in my mind because this was one of the first incidents that really made me realize that we were escalating into this period of violence against Asians, that it was beyond um, just trolling online. It was just going beyond Trump saying, Kung flu or China virus or whatever, that this is now stepping into a very bad situation. Do you know about this case? Yes. Um, I live in Brooklyn. This happened Mm -hmm. uh, a few neighborhoods away from me. It's not in my neighborhood, but it was definitely here in Brooklyn. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is an elderly woman who walks with a cane who just stepped out of her own house onto the sidewalk. And nobody deserves that. You know, it it doesn't matter if she used a cane or not. It doesn't matter if she was elderly or not. Nobody deserves that. But yeah, that was just, it was horrible. And it got a lot of headlines here in New York. It got, and it really made people wake up and, and, and really get into uh, sort of trying to figure out how we can stop this. And so this is from ABC seven news, two 13 year old boys are under arrest for allegedly setting an 89 year old woman on fire in Brooklyn. The victim said the pair never spoke a word to her before slapping her in the face and setting her clothes ablaze on the night of July 14th, 2020, in Bensonhurst. The victim told Eyewitness News she had just left her home when the two approached her near 16th Avenue and 77th Street. She said one of them struck her in the face, and then moments later, she felt a sharp pain on her back. Once she realized what was happening, she quickly pulled up her hair so it wouldn't burn and then rubbed her back against the wall to put out the flames. I uh, I saw the video of this, and it, I mean, it's just like your grandma, like... I, I mean, she's 89. It's just, it's so un, unbelievable and terrible. AM New York said the attack and the NYPD's, NYPD's decision not to investigate it as a hate crime. Not to. 
Um, sparked outrage within the Asian American community, said actor William Lexham, who organized the march with China Mac. Police said it wasn't a hate crime because there was no racial slurs that were said, Ham said. The woman doesn't even speak English, so how could she know this was an unprovoked attack? Ham, China Mac, and their mutual friend banded together to f- organize the August 1st protest called the hashtag They Can't Burn Us All March, which was promoted on social media by stars such as actress Aquafina and rapper MC Jin. The demonstration, which drew supporters as far as Philadelphia, from as far as Philadelphia, began at Shanlo Playground at 1 p.m. Speakers, including China Mac, MC Jin, and the borough president, Eric Adams, blasted the attack on the elderly woman and reaffirmed their support for Bensonhurst's Asian community. We are not here to march against white people, black people, Italian people, Spanish people, said China Mac at the rally. We're here to march against racism. This is not a race war. And that, you know, there's so much rage sometimes that's unfocused. And who do we target? Like, how does it come out? Where do we point it at? We don't point it at white supremacy, which is really the, the reason for all of this. We point it at each other, or other minorities. Oh, yeah. Um, and I mean, when one minority attacks another minority, I, I hate it when people say, oh, this is proof that Asians hate black people or black people hate Asian people or Latinos hate, you know, what, whatever that is. I think that's not proof of that at all. It's proof of white supremacy. Mm. Exactly what you're saying, Margaret. This is a yes. symptom of a much bigger, uglier issue. And, you know, we can't forget things like the model minority myth. You know who mm-hmm. came up with that myth? A white person. <laughs> you know, yes. the idea of what kind of minorities are being the right kinds of Americans, which ones are not causing too much of a fuss, which ones are being compliant, which ones are being quiet, which ones aren't reporting things that are bad that happen to them. And we know that's what a model minority is, but that's, you know, also completely made up. And it mm-hmm. is not made up to make white people feel better. Better, It is. No. Yeah. Th- this is very something specific to judging certain kinds of minorities and ranking them against each other. Right. And it's um, it would the model minority myth was actually brought forth in direct opposition to the civil rights movement. Yes. So it was like trying to show black people who are marching for their civil rights you know, don't be like that. Be like this. You know, it was showing like, oh, there's ways to be a minority that's not causing problems for the majority. And that's not a way to make a country. And if we're going to get really truthful, you're also not supposed to be here either. White people are not the original inhabitants of America. This is mm-hmm. all indigenous land that we're all on. And the fact of the matter is that we don't even know how many people died in the colonization of the United States. And so they can't feel like a serious sense of ownership when they were really only here very shortly before we were. That's absolutely true. And just to go back to the idea of pitting people of color against each other, I mean, the fact of the matter is that in the civil rights movement, marching right alongside black people were Asian people. There were people like Grace Lee Boggs on the front lines. And Mm -hmm. in a study that was done by Pew Research last year, back in September, they found that 69% of Asian Americans aligned themselves with Black Lives Matter. They fully Mm -hmm. supported Black Lives Matter compared to only 55% of the general population. So this myth that's pitting us all against each other, it is malarkey. Asian people and black people 
have been helping each other and believing each other and uh, fighting for each other's rights all along. And we don't need to be pit against each other. That's not the way we are in real life. No. And it keeps us separated and it keeps them in power, which is really, really important. And um, I'm so excited to share with you the historical case that we're going to talk about today. This case is a little bit different from the ones we've um, covered. I had a little bit of, um, I, I, this sounds weird. I had a little bit of like so much anger around the repetitive nature of the hate crimes that I was covering that I had to break free because I I'll often see myself as a victim in this. And I'm afraid to go outside because I'm an older Asian American woman in the target older? range of, oh, yeah, I'm 52. Really? Yes. I need your lotion. Whatever you're doing, you're looking great. <laughs> I use microcurrents. It's all microcurrents. It's actually all electricity based. It's not really a product. I, I'll, show, I'll, show you, I'll show you this whole thing. Thank you. But I, um, you know, I'm like, you know, I'm not trying to get killed. I'm just out here. I'm All I'm trying to do is get those uh, little Naz new Nike shoes with the blood on them. But since, since I'm an older Asian woman, I could probably just use my own blood because I'll get killed if I go outside. I think it's just really scary to go out and I just get very like, I, you know, I was reading about it too much. So this is actually a terrible case also, but it's terrible in a different way. So I want to get into it with you. And okay, so we are going to take a quick break and then we are going to dive into the story of the Suss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We are back. So I, I had a couple of different sources for this case. The Chicago Tribune and um, article about that. I also uh, listened to a podcast called It's About Crime covering this case. I also watched a um, movie called House of Sa, which goes into great detail. Also, um, people looking to Grant Andrew Sa clemency around this case. And it was, um, a ve- it's very 90s. Do you know about the Suss? Yes, a brother and a sister. Um, yes, yes. Who arranged for the murder of her boyfriend. And, yes. And uh, yes. they were Korean-American immigrants. Yes. So this is the, the story. So it, I, I, in my mind, I call it the, the Nuna murder. Because it's like, <laughs> if you're a Nuna, which is, if you're a Nuna, it's like, it's very gendered. But if you're, um, a Nuna means... You're the younger brother of an older sister and your new. So she is your Nuna. And if you are told to do something by your Nuna, you have to do it mm. like and it doesn't have to be a relation necessarily. They call Beyonce in Korea, Yonsei Nuna, because she is like Korea's Nuna. Oh, <laughs> this is really useful for me because I'm not sure if you know this, Margaret, but I'm adopted. So I was raised in a family that was mostly white. And so mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know a lot of these cultural things like this. So you just taught me something. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yes. Well, so Beyonce Nuna is your Nuna. Even if you're uh, uh, not a, a young boy, 
even if you're not that age to be a young boy or to be an older boy or a woman or a girl, you know, she's going, if you're non-binary, whatever, you're still going to have Beyonce can, can be your Nuna because Beyonce transcends all of those labels. She's the world's <laughs> Nuna and in particular Korea's Nuna. Beyonce, Beyonce, they don't even say Beyonce, they say Yonsei Nuna. Oh, <laughs> hold on. Are you everybody's Nuna too? I'm kind of everybody's Nuna, but I have drifted into Ajima territory. So now I'm everybody's Ajima. I think that once they start to be afraid of you, then you become an Ajima. So Ajima is like <laughs> older women's female power ah. that um, can be very warm and loving, but it can also be very frightening. Um, I aspire to that someday. I want to be Yeah. That. Well, you have to get a perm <laughs> and you have to get elastic waist pants. And then oh, you I'm ready. Be an Ajima. I'm so ready. <laughs> So uh, the case is, okay, from the Chicago Tribune, it was 23 years ago that Andrew Seff fatally shot his sister's boyfriend, ending the life of a man who helped raise him while forever altering his own. At the time, the then 19-year-old Chicago man was the last great, great hope of an immigrant Korean val- family with old world values and a pained history. So the family, they're really so Korean in all of my studies about them. The father... I don't know what his Korean name is, but they called themselves Ronald and Elizabeth. So they were in their 20s and they were living in Korea and they had an older son, Byung. And Byung, I think his name is Byung-un. Byung-un is also my um, mom's younger brother's name. Byung-un was a very like um, playful kid and Byung-un was on the rooftop of their apartment building and was playing uh, when he was nine years old, just running around playing and fell off the rooftop and oh he was God. brain dead. You know, of course, in sons in Korean culture, it's like your son, your firstborn son is the most precious aspect of your family. There, There is nobody uh, more important than the firstborn son. Um, the father, of course, but the father sort of gives all of his power over to the firstborn son. So they were incredibly depressed by this. Catherine, who is the younger sister and the Nuna of the story, Catherine, um, who was, I think, seven at the time, was not there, was not present at the accident, but pretty much from the father received the blame for this tragic event. So the parents were told, well, he's brain dead and we could keep him on the life support, but if we don't, he'll die but if we keep him on, he may somehow regain some consciousness, but he's always going to have diminished brain activity and diminished abilities. So in Korea at the time, you know, they're, they're just not sort of thinking about whether they can save his life. In their mind, he's already dead. And so they released the, uh, you know, machines, released him from the machines and um, he passed away. So the blame against Catherine the daughter took form in a lot of different ways. I mean, so a lot of times when you're the kids in a Korean family, especially if you move to America, you become the parent's mouthpiece because they can't speak English as well. So I was like this, that sort of person. Um, I don't have an older sibling, but with my parents, I was always their legal representation. (laughs) You know, like if they had a phone call, I would have to answer the phone. Mm -hmm. Or if they had to like make an appointment somewhere, I would do it. And so I was really talking to everybody for my family. But Catherine took on that position. But Ronald, the father, would just not stop finding fault in Catherine, no matter what it was. Because in his mind, it was because he had a daughter. And the fact that he had a daughter was such bad luck that his son was taken from him. 
And so the blame was constantly put on the daughter. And then the mother, like, you better give me another son. And the mother, Elizabeth, was in her 40s already and kind of like, well, I don't know. I'm not sure if I can have another son. But she started taking all of these experimental fertility drugs and got pregnant with Andrew. So Andrew was born in 1973. And they decided to make a fresh start in America. So they moved to Chicago. They opened a pharmacy. And they did fairly well as um, immigrants. Andrew... The son was about 11 years old. The entire family like, were struck by another tragedy in that Ronald was diagnosed with cancer. And so, you know, when I read more about Ronald, there's like so much stress that it's like I see why, you know, he, he was just in ill health. And there was a lot of things that he was doing that had set him apart from Catherine. One of the instances was um, Catherine got a phone call from a boy who seemed to be Latino, as far as Ronald could assess from the felt phone. And, you know, Catherine's probably in her early teens, maybe 15. And Ronald promptly hung phone. He grabbed Catherine and started screaming, you're nothing but a whore. My son is dead and you're a whore. And Catherine just wigged out and just started scratching her dad. And he's like bleeding everywhere. And then Ronald, the dad, grabs up a gas can and pours it on her. Catherine and himself all over and then gets a lighter. Like also this happens a lot in Korean drama. Do you watch Korean dramas? I have not seen a lot of them, but I have not seen this particular kind of thing in a Korean drama either. I think the ones that I've watched are almost like Disney movies, not like this. Oh, like uh, Dodo Fala. So (laughs) (laughs) sweet. I like that. That's cute. Almost all of the really like gritty crime Korean dramas have a gasoline (laughs) <laughs> so it's like some kind of like a gasoline thing where they, I mean, it's not funny but it happens so much that I'm like I think this is actually like a Korean thing to like set people on fire with gasoline so the father's like got got a lighter and they're both doused in gasoline his, himself and his 15 year old daughter and he's screaming Kachigaja, let's go together Kachigaja, Kachigaja. So the mom, Elizabeth and Andrew, walk in on this. The dad's like trying to hold Catherine, who's squirming. Oh They've got gasoline, but he can't light the lighter because he's like trying to hold her and light the lighter while he's covered in gas. And so the mom and Andrew, Elizabeth and Andrew, grab them, pull them apart, get the gas off them. Anyway, so the dad, Ronald, has cancer and he's dying. And Andrew, who is 11 at the time, is such a, uh, such a dutiful son. It's a good boy. He uh, is sitting by the father's bedside, sits there 24 hours a day, and uh, the father's sleeping there. And so Andrew's falling asleep, so he ties a uh, string around his hand and around his dad's hand. So if his dad moves, Andrew will wake up. And so it's that kind of like duty that got him into the Korea Times newspaper, you know, Reporters are coming by and look at this this beautiful son doing this first dying dad. And so uh, the dad dies. It's horrible. But the, the mom is kind of left with this pharmacy. She can't fa- pass the pharmacy exam. The mom is really kind of helpless without her husband. And I think she's probably coming from this place of like really like being gaslit and n- not with gas, but. You know, literally, <laughs> but more figuratively, like being told she can't do anything, be, being told all this stuff her whole life. And then suddenly her um, kind of abuser really is dead. And so she's very 
hanging on to her kids to sort of an inappropriate degree in that she can't even write a check by herself. She has to have Andrew do it for her. At that time, Catherine is off kind of doing her own thing. She's sort of like removed from the family and she doesn't really care about what's going on. So since the mom can't pass the pharmacy exam, she buys a dry cleaner and starts a dry cleaning business. And they're working there. And um, one time, uh, the mom and Andrew are out. And the mom's like, just hypothetically, if we're on a mountain and there's a fire, if you're with your wife and child and me, your mother, and you can only save one person, who do you save? And it's like 11-year-old kid. He's like, oh, no. well, I guess oh, I would... God. I don't know. Maybe I would just, uh, I would stay up here by myself and die and then you guys all be saved. And she's like, no, 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 you can't do that. And I go, well, I guess I would, I didn't even see, you know, you've lived a long life, so maybe you stay here and die. And then she, she's like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> and they're arguing about it. And it's really traumatizing. Andrew's like, I don't even know what to do because his dad has just died. And he's like, what do I do? I don't, she's like, you have to answer this question. Oh my Who do you save? And then he, he just couldn't come up with an answer. And, and she said, you have to save me because you, you may have women in your life, many women in your life. You may have children in your life, many children in your life, but you only have one mother. Really healthy. I think that's an, it's inappropriate. Very inappropriate. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. Yes. But it's very much so. <laughs> These parents both have issues. Let's be real. Both the they parents. Really- there, there are some issues there. There are fucked up things going on, and I don't, I don't even know what's happening. It's really, it's really crazy. When Andrew is 14, the um, terrible thing happens. His mother is found in the dry cleaners. She's been stabbed 34 times, most of them in her head and face. Some money is stolen, a wallet is stolen, but they have no other leads or nobody can figure out who has done this. And so Catherine comes home with her new boyfriend, Robert Duhane, and um, they sit Andrew down and they let him know what's going on. Andrew doesn't believe it, but, you know, must believe it. You know, he starts talking to the police and and this horrible thing, it's, you know, they've already been through so much. So this is just sort of the latest thing that's happened. So uh, Catherine and Robert stay with Andrew and they really kind of become his new parents. Catherine is in her early 20s Andrew is 14. Robert is about 27. So they make shift family, and they're sort of raising this young teenage boy. At one point, Andrew and Catherine get in a big argument, and they start fighting, arguing about something. Oh, I know what it is. This is super weird. Catherine comes home, and she smells perfume. And Andrew's 14. She smells perfume, and she's like, why do I smell perfume? Who's been in this house? What's, who, what woman has been in this house? Who, and... Andrew's like, nobody's been in this house. There's no, per-. And she's like, no, you don't bring whores in here. And like screaming and they're fighting. And Catherine bites him in the ribs, right in the kalbi. Oh my God. In, in the ribs. Oh my God. And it's, it oh. starts bleeding profusely. And then he just runs out of the house. About four in the morning when he comes back. And Catherine's calmed down. And they have a talk. They say to each other that you're the only one I have in the world now. Let's be a family. And Andrew says to Catherine, what do you want me to do? Because I don't know what to do anymore. What can I do? And Catherine says, just be a kid. You've never been able to be a child. You know, dad never let you be a child. Mom never let you be a child. 
I'm going to let you be a child. And the relationship works. They're good. And she starts to raise him and they're having a happy life. It's a little bit hard, but they have $800,000 left to them by the mother's life insurance policy to live off of. Robert Duhane and Catherine Sa open a nightclub called Club, Meto- Club Metropolis <laughs> in Chicago. It's very 80s. Mm-hmm. And they're doing pretty well. It's like kind of this fun thing. And they have a sort of like family. It's a little unconventional, but it's kind of working. So Robert and Catherine start having problems. You know, they've all, they've all been together about six years. Um, Andrew's going off to Loyola to college. And uh, so he's out of the picture, kind of gone a lot. So Catherine starts to reach out, crying to Andrew about how Robert is abusing her. He's, you know, going to kill her. She's really scared of him. He is uh, probably responsible for the mother's death. That she's scared because she's pretty sure that Robert either did it or that Robert found somebody to do it. And so this revelation gives Catherine so much power, you know, so she's, she's pretty much kind of like forcing this narrative onto Andrew, like, you got to protect me. You know, you, you've got to protect me. You know, he killed mom. What are you going to do? He killed mom. Like he kept, he, she keeps bringing that up. He killed mom. During this whole time, she's filing out a life insurance policy for Robert for $250,000. So Andrew comes home on an afternoon waits in their garage for four hours. And when Robert comes in, he shoots him twice, once in the head and once in the neck, and then goes back to the airport. Police apprehend him in Dallas because they think he's a drug dealer. But actually, when they search through his stuff, they find Robert's wallet. They've been searching for him. So they have finally, so they bring him back to Chicago and they're put on trial. Catherine and Andrew are put on trial for the murder of Robert Duhaine. And this whole time, Catherine had been acting like this dutiful widow. She'd been acting like, I mean, they weren't married, but they were sort of, I guess, common law in a sense. Mm -hmm. She's just destroyed. She's going with the Duhaine family to visit Robert in the cemetery. And her mother is also in the same cemetery. And Catherine goes up to the gravestone of Robert and is like crying, inconsolable. Like, I've lost my boo-boo, like baby talking to the grave. And then does the same thing to the mom's grave, baby talking and like no way to console her, screaming, crying, wailing. And then the father's grave, Ronald's is right next to her. She just look, she looks at it and she just goes, oh. And at that point, the family of Robert DeHane were like, that's kind of weird that she's completely over the top crazy about Robert and the mom and then nothing about the father. So they, they note that. And so when Andrew's arrested and is brought back to Chicago for the murder, they realize, oh, they had a plot to kill Robert. So... The day of the trial happens, and Andrew's there, and Catherine is not. Catherine doesn't show up to court. She's just gone and leaves Andrew there to take the blame for everything. Andrew's 19, kind of confused, but also confessed to everything. Catherine is on the run and gone. Is gone for about three years. Andrew takes the rap for all of it. He is given 100 years for the murder, which is reduced to 80 years and Catherine is resuming identities she moves to Honolulu there's an America's Most Wanted episode about her when there's an America's Most Wanted then she turns herself in she'd been living under a number of assumed names 
I think one of them is Tiffany Escada. Love it. Love it. So Dateline NBC. <laughs> Tiffany Escada. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when she's in when she's in Hawaii, uh, in Honolulu, she turns herself in. And, and the uh, arrest video is really interesting because she just, she looks really, really messed up and she has no shoes on. But still gorgeous. There's something about her that is like definitely a survivor. You know, there's a strength that you see, but I, I could just see this also like real sort of righteous anger there. Like I did this because I deserved it. There's something about it that I really recognize in myself. I'm like, oh God, I could totally see being so angry. There's a kind of Korean rage that happens in women sometimes that just come. Do you ever have that Korean rage? Oh yeah. I believe in revenge and I don't think forgiveness is, I think it's overrated. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I forgiveness agree. is so overrated, especially in our great American culture of betterment. It's like, you know what? Some shit doesn't deserve to be forgiven. You can just sit and feel bad about this forever because what you did is unforgivable. Just live with the misery of it. Yeah. And your self-recrimination and your sense of guilt. Let that eat you up forever as you look in the mirror each day and know how horrible you are. I don't need right. to forgive you. Yeah. I love that. I think that's right. I think that there is an element of self-forgiveness for oh, yeah. like that's different you know like, yeah. yeah yeah we have to do what we have to do for ourselves and to mm -hmm. you know to continue to wake up each day and do the best we can we have to do what we have to do but do i have to do that for you no no <laughs> no you can do that for yourself if you want exactly like i definitely like I forgive myself for being victimized like i have to like go through a lot of forgiveness for myself for being in things that i shouldn't have been and but then I love I, I love my own anger. I don't feel like it's corrosive because I do try to get get like some ways to let it out. But um, you can see it in Catherine. So just the rate Tanya Escada or Tiffany Escada. Yes. All of the different um, identities. And she's so beautiful, you know, and she's just so like perfectly late 80s, early 90s Asian beauty, you know, like Miss teen Hawaii you yes. know that kind of perfect look of um she Maybe reminds me the eyebrows are plucked just a little bit too much yeah. by today's standards but back yeah. then those eyebrows were on point that's what we wanted back then <laughs> that's what we wanted to have shaved eyebrows some people would shave them oh god I'm so glad this we're past is, that <laughs> I know I'm so glad because I really I used to have like very thick like a Brooke Shields brow which was great in the 80s and then in the 90s it was all wrong yeah, those brows, they changed very quickly. Yeah, so you had to pluck them and pluck them, and they didn't come back. <laughs> I was too aggressive. I was too aggressive in plucking. Um, but Catherine uh, was uh, also given life in prison when she returned. They made a TV movie of the incident, but they didn't use Asian people. <gasps> what? They Christy oh Swanson God. plays Catherine Seth. Shut up. Really? Yeah, and the son, the Andrew is played by an, an actor. I don't know his name, but he was on Baywatch. He's that a white actor. That makes me so, so they, mad. Isn't that horrifying? The part of that story that is so fascinating is that it kind of comes a lot from the misogynistic patriarchy of Korea, the toxic masculinity that exists in Korea. This is really part of the the real villainy of the story because you and see they the just damage. It all. 
They erased it all and made it about Hollywood this. Hollywood loves to erase a person of color. They love to do that. Don't and, they? And, and, and fill in Christy Swanson. <laughs> I mean, you know, I original Buffy, of course. And, and the one who Ducky thought was so pretty at the end of Pretty in Pink. Let's not forget. Oh, yes. I did a movie with her um, in the early 90s. Oh, God. It was a control room. It was like... Uh, the the time for a minute where air traffic controllers were really chic. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember the name of it. It was like control room or there was a bunch of movies just about air traffic control room. And it was like all in one room, like a Glen Gary, Glenn Ross, all in one room, acting tour de force <laughs> with me and uh Robert Sean Leonard and Christy <gasps> Swanson. Oh my god! I need to. He's great. I need to look this up because I need to watch this. Yeah, it's a really, it's really, it's really funny. But it's what's really also funny is that I lost my voice during the filming, so I had to go back and dub the whole thing. So it's a little bit off. <laughs> so it's really, it looks a little bit like um, one of those uh, like uh, Michelle Yeoh like early martial arts movies because oh, yes. I'm a little bit off. Yes, but. Uh, yeah, the, that I, I so I did a movie with Christy Swanson and um, she did food combining where she would only eat proteins or only eat carbohydrates at each meal. You can't <laughs> so have I both together. No. Oh, that's so sad. That's so I know sad. it's so sad. It's like the life of a '90s actress. Too much. <laughs> too much to do. Too much to remember. So yeah, they made a movie about it. Andrusa is uh, appealing for clemency. He is now 47. He's been in prison for a long time, uh, about um, 27 years. Twenty, Yeah, 27 years. 26 years. And about five years ago, he reached out to Catherine because their prisons are not far from each other and uh, said, hey, you know, I really would love to talk to you. I miss you. And we're family and you're still all I have. And uh, she wrote back and said, I don't ha- I don't know you. I don't have a brother. Don't ever try to speak to me again. And it's really sad. Mm. Anuna shouldn't do that. So, you know, she has uh, crossed off the Nuna list. That is so sad. Oh, I feel bad for both of them, though, Margaret. I feel I bad for say, both of them. Like, Catherine sounds like she got dealt a shit hand, too. Like, really bad. Yeah. And, I, and I don't want to ever in any way suggest that I'm blaming the victim here. But my understanding is her boyfriend... He started dating her when she was barely legal, like she was 18 mm. and he was mm-hmm. 25 or 27 or whatever at the time yeah. when he started dating her. And it's like... Yeah, he's older, yeah. It, that doesn't sound like necessarily a relationship of equals too. And it, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I just feel like she had a lot of things that were not right in her life. And I don't want to... Again, I don't want to blame the victim. I don't know that much about her boyfriend, but I do know that he was quite a bit older and unemployed and so on when he met her and, and, and just... I think what 18-year-old girl should have to take that on, too. Right. I think she's just doing what she can. And then also it's the misogyny of the time where they like to frame characters in these historical archetypes, like the teen villain, the teen femme fatale. Mm -hmm. And femme fatale, it's like women will kill you. Women are deadly. And they're born bad. Amy Fisher. All that stuff. Yeah. She fits into those archetypes of these children girl children who were uh, treated as hardened criminals when really they're just trying to get by. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I, I do feel for her. I'm I'm not saying anything she did was right, but I do feel bad mm-hmm. for the hand that she was dealt and what she, yes. you know, what, what she was dealing with. I feel bad. And I obviously feel bad for Andrew. He was only yeah, a teenager when all this went down. Oh he my was God. a kid and yeah. he was told that, you know, this man killed your mother. And, and also kind of being the burden, bearing the burden of the entire family of like the death of the older brother, the death of the father, the death of the mother, and the, all of the inappropriateness that went along with all of those deaths that really scarred him and really made him rely on his Nuna, who was also scarred by all of the things that she had gone through. It, it's just a, a, unhappy for all. I do hope that... Uh, Andrew Sa does receive clemency. I know that it's still up to the judge and nobody really knows, but he's been there a long time. He's very handsome. Um, <laughs> he's married. I see a ring on his finger. Uh, oh, so he's got married in prison. It's very interesting. And they were such a beautiful, you know, the beautiful Korean-American kids. You know, you see their pictures in the 80s and they're at like Korean camp or Korean school. I don't know if they did any of that, but they, <laughs> they're just beautiful. And uh, so... That is the story of the Nuna murder, the sus. And I know that um, as far as clemency is concerned, I know that the victim's family is not fighting it. They're not advocating for it, but they're not fighting it either. Yeah. You know, so I think they also see that he wasn't just a ruthless killer. I think they see there was more to this story. Yeah, there's a lot more. And there's so much more to our story as Asian Americans. You know, there's so much to tell. And the rich history of this is really been fascinating to unpack. And thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find you? All your wonderful coverage on, on all things royal, <laughs> royalty-based, and the, the new royals, the real royals, the best royals. Yes. Um, well, Megan you can find Perry. me on Twitter at Kristen Meinzer. And I have a few podcasts you can listen to. My royals one is called When Megan Met Harry, a royal wedding cast. Uh, We mostly folded that one um, and have only put out a few bonus episodes in the last few years because it was mostly about the lead up to the wedding and my co-host and I went to the wedding also. That was the original finale episode was us at the wedding. So incredible. Oh, it was so great. The best day of our lives. I also host a show called By the Book with Jolenta Greenberg. And it's Mm -hmm. a comedy show where Jolenta and I for the last five years choose a different self-help book every other week. We live by the rules and we record ourselves so you can hear how each book enhances and destroys our lives and our marriages. It's like a reality show in audio form. And then uh, the third show that if you would like to check out, if you love movies, if you love Margaret Show, because Margaret, we've actually recommended movies that you're in. So on movie therapy, people write or call in with their life issues. It's like a Dear Abby sort of show. And we give oh. some advice, and then we prescribe them a movie and a TV show to watch to help them through whatever ails them. So that's called Movie oh, Therapy with that. Rafer and Kristen. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, everybody listen. I'm going to listen. Yep. And uh, I kid you not, we have definitely prescribed movies and TV shows with you in them. <laughs> it's so fabulous. Well, I'm so honored. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for joining me today. And I, I just, I'm so excited that we got to do this. Thank you so much, Margaret. Thank you. Today we are highlighting Heart of Dinner, an organization that's combating food insecurity and isolation within New York City's elderly Asian American community. They deliver care packages to Asian elders and handwritten notes in Chinese or Korean. Volunteer or donate at heartofdinner.org. We will link to them in our show notes. 
If you want to support our show, subscribe, rate, review on Apple Podcast, and spread the word. Reach out to me on Twitter with your thoughts, at Margaret Cho, or at Instagram, at Margaret underscore Cho. The Margaret Cho is produced by the Erios Network. Erios. Powered by ACAST. 